Hey, I'm Cathy Walker from the Girls' Day School Trust. We are a family of 25 schools across the UK. We were founded by women, four girls, 150 years ago. And to this day, we remain experts in educating and inspiring girls. On each episode of Racer Up, we welcome guests who are experts in their fields to share their insights, creating the ultimate guide to raising and empowering girls, women, and everyone else. We welcome the stories and advice that help us as parents, carers, educators, and friends to instill the confidence and drive in girls to become the change makers that the world really needs. In this episode, I'm talking to speaker, author, and podcaster, Dr. Liz O'Riordan. When I was having chemo, it was all pink bras and pink hair straighteners and I couldn't wear a bra and I didn't have any hair. As a cancer patient, it feels like people are just making money out of breast cancer. Just see how much money is actually going to charity. And if it's like 5p, that money isn't actually going to help anybody. At the age of 40, as she was working as a breast cancer surgeon, Dr. O'Riordan discovered that she had the breast cancer that she was so used to treating in others. After going through chemotherapy and a mastectomy, she returned to work cancer-free. But then in 2018, the cancer returned and she was forced to retire. Since then, Dr. O'Riordan has taken on the most gruelling physical challenges for charity and she now speaks and writes about her experiences. From the GDST, this is Raise Her Up and this is Dr. Liz O'Riordan. And I think again, one of I the thought what's going through her was that's what we're giving, isn't it? As a parent, we're giving our love. Raise, Raise Her Up. Liz, thank you so much for being our guest today. Thanks, Kathy. I can't wait to chat. So can you start by talking through your own experience of breast cancer? You've had it, you've overcome it. You've taken on some really gruelling physical challenges for charity to raise awareness of it. Some challenges that people who have never even had any experience of breast cancer themselves have taken on and failed at. So talk to us about your story and how you got to this point. Well, I... I'm embarrassed to say I never checked my breasts. As a doctor and a trainee breast surgeon, I never thought I would get breast cancer, like many, many women. It was only when someone had it on EastEnders that I might feel myself. And I first found a lump in my breast when I was 36. I just got engaged and my husband had gone off sailing around the Greenland and the Arctic. And I was paranoid. I thought it was breast cancer. I'd be dead in a year. I couldn't get married. I'd lose my hair. I couldn't have a wedding dress. Really histrionic howling on the sofa, which seems ridiculous now, but that fear was real. And I got it checked out in a couple of weeks at the breast clinic and it was just a cyst. And it's very common for women in their 30s and 40s to have breasts full of cysts because of hormone changes. So I calmed down. And then in 2014, I'd been working as a consultant breast surgeon for a year and I found a lump in my right breast and I went and had it scanned and it was all normal. It was a cyst. And six months later, I had another lump in my left breast and went to get it checked because it was new and the scans are all normal. So when I found another lump in my left breast in July 2015, I was 40. I just thought it was another cyst. I wasn't bothered. And I told my mum and she said, look, will you just get it checked out? Because I'm worried if you're not. So I went along and my mammogram was normal. And the woman examining me was the woman who trained me to be a breast surgeon. And she wasn't sure what it was. So she did an ultrasound. And I turned to look at the screen because I do ultrasounds myself and I wanted to see what the cysts looked like. But I saw a cancer. And in that split second, I knew, I knew too much because I've looked after women with breast cancer. I knew exactly what the future held for me. And that was chemotherapy, a mastectomy, radiotherapy, 10 years of drugs to stop it coming back. 
How did you feel? I mean, what went through your mind at that moment? Initially, shock and then denial. Normally, whenever you're diagnosed with an illness, you are drip fed information. You have a symptom, the doctor does a test, you go back for the results. You have an operation, you go back for the results. But when I saw my cancer, I knew it was big. I was young. I knew my odds of being alive in 10 years. And my surgeon came in before we did the biopsy and said, where do you want to be treated? Because we both knew. And it was really hard telling my mum and dad that I'd be telling them in a week I had breast cancer. And everyone said, no, no, you won't. I'm like, no, I will. And I think part of me is still in denial that it ever happened. And that's because I've looked after men and women who've died of breast cancer. And I don't, I can't associate that with what I've had myself. But you just cope like anyone, whenever anything bad happens to you, you just have to carry on. But what a unique experience for you and yeah. your perspective as a medic and knowing exactly what was happening to you and knowing exactly that you knew that you were not going to be able to dress it up. I mean, but the crazy thing is I thought I knew what treatment would be like because I prescribed these drugs and these operations every day and I actually had no idea. I was scared about having an operation. I didn't really know what chemo would be like. And I realised the healthcare profession is excellent at telling people what will happen to them, but we're not very good at helping them cope. Because if you haven't had it yourself, you don't know what people need. And that's where my learning really came. When you talk about how people will cope, the fact that you have gone on to do some of these incredible challenges that we've mentioned, was that a form of, uh, of coping mechanism for you? It was. Um, I'm embarrassed to say I did no sport at school. I was the girl who avoided sport. I, I, I used to go and teach in a local comprehensive school rather than get naked in those awful communal showers. I hated sport. And then when I started dating my husband, he got a bike and I realised if I didn't cycle at the weekends, I'd never see him. So I got into cycling and then I got bored of just cycling and I looked into triathlons because I'd run the marathon very, very slowly and I used to swim. And I'd just done my first triathlon six months before I was diagnosed. And a lot of people had told me it's important to exercise throughout treatment. It will help with the side effects. It will help you feel better. It's the best thing for fatigue, but it's the last thing you want to do. And I thought, I don't want to be known as a cancer patient. I'm Liz. And part of me being Liz was being active. And so I carried on. I did the local park runs very slowly. I lifted weights in the gym. I did a sprint triathlon halfway through chemo. And I thought, I am proud of my body. And I'm lucky to have two arms and two legs that work because I know several people who've had limbs amputated for cancer. I thought, right, let's just see what I can do. So I thought I'll cycle up mountains and do half Ironman for charity. But what was really hard was the surgical mentality in me likes to be the best. And it was really hard exercising, knowing I'm slow and I'm just getting around and that's okay. But that sense of achievement of what you can do after you've had grueling cancer treatment was just amazing. Oh, absolutely. The human body is the most amazing thing. It's the most amazing tool that we have. You know, I think that we are capable of so much. Yeah. And as you say, you know, you cope because you have to. Exactly. I think it's mind mind over matter is huge. It is. It is absolutely. So Liz, you are here to give us the lowdown on breasts as well as sharing your own story. We have parents, carers, daughters listening into this episode, wanting reassurance and perhaps wanting some pointers about what is normal and what, what we, you know, we should be worrying about. So can we start by talking about what is normal in terms of when and how breasts develop and how important bras are for developing girls? Yeah. So breasts start to develop um, at puberty and often it's one of the first things that can happen, but they can start to develop anywhere from 9, 10 all the way up to 15, 16. 
And there's that awful thing at school when you're the first one to develop and suddenly you've got a D-cup breast when you're 11 and then there's when you're 15, 16 and you're late. You can't rush it. It just happens. And when they start to grow, they look a bit odd. They look a bit pointy and a bit conical. You kind of have this little bud. And a lot of doctors refer girls in with kind of painful protruding nipples, but it's not. It's just the beginning of puberty. And in time, they start to grow. And there is no way of predicting how big your breasts will be. Your mum may have large breasts, but you may have small. You can't make them bigger. If you put on weight, then your breasts will get bigger because of fat. But if you lose the weight, they'll shrink. Yeah. You may not realize, but your breasts can be really, really heavy. So a 36 C cup, which is actually quite a small breast now, weighs 500 grams. That's a small bag of sugar. So if you are a 36 C, you have a kilogram of tissue just hanging off your chest wall. And that can give you pain, pain in your breasts, in your back, in your shoulders. So wearing a bra is really important to help your body support the weight of your breasts. Bras do not cause breast cancer and underwire bras are completely safe. And often the underwire can help with larger breasts, give you a bit of extra support. But it's really important you get measured regularly. Most of us get measured when we're 16 or 18, and that's our breast size for life. But your bra size changes as your body weight changes and as your breasts are growing. And it's really important if you've gone up or down a dress size to get fitted again. So there's four key things when you're getting fitted. The first is the middle of the bra should be flush against your sternum, the middle of your rib cage. Often women have big breasts and they wear they don't want to wear the, a bra that's really big and it's kind of flopping in the breeze. So the middle of the bra should be sitting flush against your breastbone. The next thing is that your straps shouldn't be able to lift above your ears. If you can raise your strap above your head, they're not tight enough. They're not supporting you. The next thing is at the back, it should be closed on the widest clasp. And then as the bra stretches, you tighten it. If your bra is on the tightest strap and it's a bit loose and it's been overstretched, it needs to go away. But the big thing, I, I thought I was a 34A and my bras were really uncomfortable. I couldn't wait to take them off. I got measured. I was actually a 30D because most, if you look at the side in the mirror and you see, is your breast tissue bulging out the side of the cup or is all your breast tissue enclosed? Because our breasts are actually really quite wide and you often need a much bigger cup than you think to fully support the breast tissue. So have a look in the mirror, lift your arm up. Is all your breast tissue inside that cup? And if it's not, you need a bigger cup size. These are such helpful, practical tips. I'm just imagining the women listening to this episode today and standing in front of mirrors doing this. This is all really good, helpful stuff. Thank you. Especially large bras, because if you do, if you are more than an FGHJ cup, the bras are really, really expensive to make. And it, I think it's unfair that they cost so much more because it's not your fault you've got large breasts. Absolutely. And I am wondering if the next step after, you know, the abolition of the tampon tax, for example, and, and, and getting rid of VAT on sanitary products will be to take away the VAT from bras as well. Well, the VAT is taken off after you've had a mastectomy. So post-surgery bras don't have VAT on them. Oh, that's remarkable. I didn't know that. Yes. The women who have post-mastectomy bras to put prostheses in, they don't pay the VAT on them. On each episode of Razor Up, we speak to a member of our GDST community to get their take on the matter at hand. And I'm here today with Vicky Wilson, who is based at Newcastle High School for Girls, and she is the trust consultant nurse, which means that she works with schools across the whole GDST. 
So we do various different things and we start really young and that year two do subjects around naming body parts so that, you know, part of their bodies are accepted. It's the same as looking after your hair or your teeth, looking after your breasts is just another body part and looking at body neutrality, that your body is just there to look after you and you look after it. It's nothing to do with image and things like that. I think that's a really important message. And we look at different things and use various different resources around appearance and social ideals and social media and the impact on body image and how that makes you feel. We do lots of things around puberty and looking at things like there's a really brilliant video that we watch in Year 7 in Newcastle around and it's got wonky boobs in it and they think it's hilarious but it's really important to recognise that breasts are all different shapes and sizes and they're equal so wonky boobs is really important and what's normal for them and what's normal for their body and that's introducing them being able to recognise when anything's wrong with their breasts. As they grow up we look at things around breast awareness and year 11 do things around breast examination within PSHE which is personal social health education and looking for changes um, and how your breasts feel or look is really important. The Dove um, self-esteem project is brilliant resources. Um, Copper Feel as well is really brilliant around breast health. Nurses across the trust are using all different resources like that. We'll look at body image through the ages and where does that information come from? How are we being fed that? So the girls are really aware now that there is social constructs around body image and appearance. The appearance pressures and the impact that has on them, they're they're really aware of that. Can I take you back to something you said before about as you're growing up and throughout your life as a woman? I mean, I don't know any women who haven't at some point felt uncomfortable and awkward about their breasts. So do you think there's anything that we can do to normalise the way breasts are perceived in our society? Because, you know, women and girls are sexualized because of their breasts, aren't they? I think it's really hard to change human behaviour. I think it stems back to, as you said, breasts are sexual. You go back to the old page three girls, you get sexy pictures of stars on a night out with a low cut dress and their implants boosting their cleavage. Oh my goodness. Yes. Page three. I find it completely remarkable to believe that that even existed now. So for those of you that don't know, the sun used to have on page three, a topless model, and she was posed to make her breasts stick out. And it's a little bit about this is Sarah and she's a model and she's a 36D and she likes to do swimming, whatever. Every day you'd see a photograph of an attractive topless woman. Yeah. I'd see my male patients looking at it on the ward whilst I'm I'm examining them. I think but breasts are pretty to look at and they are part of sexual attraction and part of getting intimate with someone. And it's how you dissociate the private side of breasts to they're just part of a human body. And I think almost educating children at school to say, this is just part of the body. You have no right to stare at it. But then as a young girl, I remember I didn't want to get breasts. The boys pinging my bra strap and that's sheer. And I spent months, years walking around with my shoulders hunched because I didn't want anyone to know I had breasts. And then I went to university and suddenly it's the wonder bra and get them out because maybe you'll get help me get a boy. And I just think we don't talk about it as families and parents. We don't talk about this. How do you feel? What right does anyone have to look at to touch them? And I, th- I think it's just general education of children and at school. I don't think a policy can do it because you can't stop those thoughts in your head. Absolutely. I mean, it seems absurd. I mean, how do we explain that there is this conflicted and inconsistent approach 
in the way breastfeeding pictures are censored. But yes, again, you know, breasts are ubiquitous. They are in advertising, they are on TV, they are in film, and you know, they are in, in on Instagram as well, aren't they? And and other social media platforms. They're on Love Island, but you can't show a baby being breastfed on social media. Oh god, it's ridiculous. You know, it's just someone breastfeeding a baby. It's natural. It's it's natural. It's a natural part of being a woman and having a child and pregnancy. They're just they're functional. A breast's function is to produce milk for a child. Yeah, exactly. And the fact that you can't show that. I mean, it just seems like our societal attitudes around breasts have been built around yeah. this paradox for centuries, it would seem. And women who've got large breasts who can't hide them get so much attention. You know, the wolf whistling down the street. I think maybe telling girls it is a fact of life that people are going to look and stare because it's just human nature and help them understand how what they're wearing, they may have to put up with more comments than otherwise. So they're mentally prepared to deal with it if and when it happens. I mean, there's a real trend, which I find incredibly refreshing of, of younger women who will wear what they want as a means of empowering themselves. You know, this is my body. I'm wearing what I want to wear. And you are the one that needs to adapt your attitude. And I just find that so incredibly brave and empowering for them. It's a really refreshing, healthy attitude, like Demi Moore's daughter walking around saying, free the nipple. You know, it's just breasts. And I think women, we need to tell girls, you can wear what you'd like, but there are people who will still stare and make comments. But if you are empowered and think, what on earth are you looking at? You know, it's got nothing to do with you. It's just a breast. Go look at your mums if you want to look. Having that, the answer to say, stop staring at me, or do you want me to look at your crotch? That giving them that kind of comeback in a safe way to say, wear what you like, celebrate your body. And give them the tools to protect or defend themselves if they feel uncomfortable. Can I ask you, what's been your experience or, or, or your overview of why women decide to have cosmetic surgery? And, you know, are our trends changing? Do women still want to have bigger breasts on average? Or is there a desire for smaller breasts? Uh, does the desire for cosmetic surgery and, and breast enhancement or reduction, does it change with evolving fashions, for example? I didn't do cosmetic surgery myself. I only did breast cancer surgery, but I think I think the need is always there and I think part of it is driven by what you see in the media. Women who want to get a kind of a career in showbiz often feel they need to have the perfect breasts. And luckily the trend has gone away from people like um Posh Spice and Jordan that had very obvious breasts. We're now very good at putting them in so they look a little bit more subtle. But I think many women have real body image issues, body dysmorphia, where they are mentally unwell because of how they feel about their breasts. And for a lot of women, it's how their body changes after childbirth. So when you get pregnant, there is no way of knowing whether your breasts are going to inflate like balloons or not. And if they do inflate like balloons after you've breastfed or you haven't, they can deflate again. And then you're left with really big empty breasts. And a lot of women just want implants to fill the envelope again and just feel human. And I think there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. But you need to know that breast implant surgery is not a one-off because implants often need replacing every five to 10 years. And in time, as your breast tissue falls off the top of the implants, you may need a lift or a tighten or a tweak. So it's not saving up five grand for a one-off boob job. You may need to redo it to keep that look. I think the phase has gone for really obvious exaggerated boobs and a lot of celebrities are having theirs taken out. Um, and I think we are getting back to that more natural accept who you are, which is, I think, a really good thing. So Liz, what advice do you have for girls, for women who feel self-conscious about their breasts? And what can parents and carers do to encourage 
our younger women to feel comfortable with their breasts in a society which, as we have said already, sexualizes them? Oh, that's quite a challenging question. I think it's for girls. I think any girl's going to feel embarrassed when their breasts start to grow. And I think if a mum or a dad can sit down and say, right, you are going to feel embarrassed. This is normal. We've all gone through it. If your mum or your aunt, your friend could talk to you, your sister, this is what it was like for me. So you know you're not alone. And they're tips and tricks for dealing with the boys pinging the brass straps. And, and we're not defined by our breasts. They don't make you a woman. When I lost my breast with breast cancer, I suddenly had to think what it meant to me. Did I define my sexuality by it or how I dressed or was it part of being intimate with my husband? And it was gone. And actually, it doesn't define me. I'm still a woman. I still wear sexy clothes. I can still feel attractive. They don't define me. And it's actually quite freeing to realise they're just breasts. I look at women's breasts now and look, well, they've had implants or so they had a boob job. Just talk about women's breasts that you see. How do they make you feel? Just make it become something normal to talk about. Yes, completely. I think it's uh, part of teaching young women to feel comfortable in their own skin and to not compare. You know, but Sadly, I, I think that comes with age and experience. I think a real piece of wisdom is that comparison is the thief of joy. I think that certainly as I have got older, I have become, you know, I'm much more full of admiration for my body, which has had two children, still functions pretty well, still on the whole does what I want it to do. I think there's something really to be said for appreciating your body. It's the most powerful tool you will ever possess in your life. And it is a thing of of beauty and of power, you know, regardless of how it looks. But I think what can actually help is actually going with your mum and dad and Googling what breasts look like. Because they come in every shape and size. Nipples can be anything from one centimetre to 10 centimetres wide. Some are hairy and it's normal to get hairs around your nipples during puberty. That's completely normal. Some are big, some are thick, some are saggy. Often they're different sizes and your breasts can actually grow when it's that time of the month. And it may be that one breast can grow up to a cup size bigger, the other doesn't. That's completely normal. They're sisters, not twins. Sisters, not twins. That's fantastic. Sisters, not twins. They're not the same. No one is completely identical. So can we uh, talk or kind of continue to talk about, about this practical advice? At what age should women start checking their breasts and should they be doing so at a particular time of the month? I think girls should start checking their breasts around the age of probably 18, 19, 20. Your breasts aren't really fully developed until you're 21, 22. But I think around that time when you they've stopped growing and they're a definite size. Why do you check your breasts? It's to see if there's a lump in the breast that could be a breast cancer. And although you'll hear about lots of young women having cancer when they're young, particularly Sarah Harding from Girls Aloud, which is tragic, it's actually really rare. Most women start to get breast cancer in their late 40s to 50s. The risk of getting it when you're 20 or 30 is about one in 5,000, one in 2,000. It's tiny, but it can still happen. And we don't offer mammograms, which is a special x-ray to check women's breasts until they're 50. Because it's so rare in young women, it's a waste of time and money to do it. So all you can do is check. And it's really important just to know what's normal for you. Lots of young women get lumps in their breasts. They're either cysts or we call them breast mice, like a little bit of breast tissue that's formed a marble that you can move around the breast, all completely normal. The best time to check your breasts is in the middle of your cycle. And that's when your hormones are at the lowest and your breasts are less painful and less lumpy. And I now put an alarm in my phone. Um, if I don't have periods, I do it on the first of the month. But if you have a regular cycle, then the middle of your cycle. And if you're on the pill, then the middle of your pill pack would be when you should check them. Okay, that's really helpful. And can you give us a quick explanation of how we should be checking our breasts? Should we be standing up, sitting up, lying down? 
The first thing I would do is look in front of a mirror, topless, and you want to look at your breasts. Do they look the same? Can you see any lumps? Can you see any odd rashes on the skin? Are your nipples both sticking out or sticking in? What's normal for you? Then I want you to lift your arms above your head. And what that does is lift the breast. And sometimes you can see tethering, pulling the breast tissue down. So lift your hands up in the air and then put your hands on your hips and push in. And you're just looking to see if the breast changes. The best way to feel your breasts is lying down with your head on a pillow or lying flat in the bath. And what that does is place all the breast tissue on your chest wall. It's fine standing up in the shower if you have small breasts that you can't hold a pencil underneath. But really, doctors do it with you lying flat on a couple of pillows. And you're going to feel your breasts. When you're doing it, you're trying to really firmly push your breast tissue against your rib cage, seeing if you can feel a lump. And I want you to feel, if you open your hand and look at your palm and your fingers, I want you to feel your breasts with a flat underside of your fingers. And you're going to use your flat fingers to push down against your breast. And if you imagine your breast like a circle, it's got a little teardrop heading up towards your armpit. And it doesn't matter how you do it, as long as you feel all of the breast. I like to do it going around in an ever-decreasing circle. So I'll start at the armpit and I'll go around in a circle until I get to the nipple. Other people like to do it like a clock face. So you'd start at 12 o'clock and feel down to the nipple and then go to one o'clock. And you may find it easier to use one hand on one breast and one hand on the other. It shouldn't take very long. And you'll probably find one area of the breast feels lumpy and that's often the bit towards the armpit. Don't panic. Check the other side because it probably feels the same as well. So Liz, can I uh, change the topic slightly? You've previously talked about pinkwashing when it comes to fundraising and awareness. Can you, first of all, give us a definition of what pinkwashing is and tell us about your view of this from your dual perspective as a medic and also as a cancer survivor? So pinkwashing is what the breast cancer community describe what happens in October when it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And Every company seems to be flogging pink products to make money, to raise money for research. And when I was having chemo, it was all pink bras and pink hair straighteners. And I couldn't wear a bra and I didn't have any hair. And it seemed like very little of that money was actually going to breast cancer research, a tiny, tiny amount. Now, when I was in a surgeon, Breast Cancer Awareness Month didn't bother me. I didn't really buy any of the products. But as a cancer patient, it feels like People are just making money out of breast cancer. And it all started, we're never going to change the pink ribbon. A lot of women hate pink. It happened because Estee Lauder got breast cancer and she started it all. So the pink ribbon is here to stay. But what I try and encourage people to do now is if you want to buy a pink hair straightener, that's fine. But just see how much money is actually going to charity. And if it's like 5p, that money isn't actually going to help anybody. Yeah, absolutely. So you have said that you prefer to donate to the smaller charities, you know, those which prioritise research into a cure. And can you tell us a little bit more about that? Perhaps even suggest a particular breast cancer charity for people listening. I think donating to charity is really, really personal. So when I ran the marathon, I did it for my local hospice because I knew that money was going to pay for a nurse to look after cancer patients rather than a big charity where you believe will it all get swallowed up um, in paperwork. I think a lot of breast cancer research in the media is aimed at preventing it. And that really annoys me because, oh God, I wish we could find a cure and it never happened. But the biggest reason women get breast cancer is because they're women and they're living, they're older. The, long, the older you are, the more likely your risk is. And we can't stop either of those things happening. But there are lots of 
women and men with breast cancer that's come back and we are running out of drugs and they're dying. And I would much rather give my money to researchers who are looking for a cure when it has spread than trying to prevent it. So the Institute of Cancer Research often will fund fellowships of people looking into that, the same as CRUK. And I think places like Maggie Centres and local breast cancer centres that are actually supporting women and men and their partners through their journey. If you gave the money to them, could they put on a yoga class to help some people cope? Just think about ways that you can help people in other ways than putting into a big generic pot. So Liz, you really do have a unique perspective. So what's the most important lesson that you have taken from being a medic who has had breast cancer in this way? I think it's two. Professionally, I've realised that doctors and nurses could do could do so much more to help their patients. And it's not necessarily telling them information, but directing them, signposting them to digital websites, apps, forums to help them cope with life once they leave the hospital door. So coping with sex and intimacy and work and all those things that we struggle with as patients. And I think listening to patients and learning how to actually help them live again is great. Personally, I'm a completely different person. I was a really shy, private, introverted breast surgeon who dabbled on Twitter. And through talking and writing about my experiences, I've, I've become this almost like a powerhouse, a new way of helping people, a new zest for life. And I've realized that it's the family and the friends and the memories I make that are important, although shoes and handbags are nice. And it's almost, it's never a gift and it's never a wake-up call, but it's made me realize that it's not the end of the world that I'm not a breast surgeon anymore. And life can throw you a curveball and actually it's a chance to try something new and have fun. That is brilliant. Thank you, Liz. Thank you so much for your time, your openness, for sharing your expertise and for advising our listeners with such compassion and clarity. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kathy. It's been great to chat. And Dr. O'Riordan's book, The Complete Guide to Breast Cancer, How to Feel Empowered and Take Control, is available to buy now. And you can also listen to her podcast, Don't Ignore the Elephant, wherever you've heard this one. It was a real privilege to speak to Liz. Personally, I found it really reassuring to hear from a medic um, the things that I know to be true, you know, that size and shape don't matter. It was also really interesting to have the conversation about censorship online um, as a little postscript. When I looked through the transcript of this episode, um, I found it mildly amusing to see that the word nipple had been um, blocked out by the transcript uh, software, which I think demonstrates everything we were talking about. Um, and just as one final aside, Liz talked about giving your money to a charity that has impact. Um, and on that note, Liz chose, in lieu of having a fee for her appearance on Racer Up, to have a donation to the Trussell Trust, which is working to stop UK hunger and poverty through a network of food banks. So we have made a donation on her behalf. Thank you for being with me on this episode of Race Her Up. If you give us a follow, then you won't have to search the podcast out. It will always just drop into your library whenever a new episode comes out. And the next guest I have for you is brilliant. She is the mother of nine children, the carer of a thousand sheep and the award-winning author of five books. She is the Yorkshire Shepherdess, Amanda Owen. Look at the heat we had this summer. The impact that is having on food production, on farming, on nature. I just don't know how we're going to sort of turn that around really it's difficult i'll see you then and i think again one of I the thought, things what's going through her that's what we're giving isn't it as a hell we're giving our love raise her up